The following Noble Path talk is part of an informal series offered to Sangha members over Zoom during monthly online meetings for those who've been practicing at the Zen Center of New York City, Fire Lotus Temple. Each Sangha member shares their experience of how they came to find the Dharma and how their practice has been developing. We hope you enjoy the diversity of voices and experiences. Thank you for listening. You know, when Hojin asked me to do this, I my, my first response was, uh, well, so the, 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 the topic is to just talk about your experience in practice, how you came to practice. And I felt like, well, that's, that's kind of what I talk about every talk that I give. Um, I don't know if I have anything more to say on that subject. <laughs> but uh, so I've been digging around and I, I hopefully came up with a little bit. Um, I haven't really talked about, you know, the traditional way of I mean, talk about your life story or anything. So I thought maybe I'd, I'd uh, take a stab at that. So when I started looking at, whenever I started to look at sort of my, to go back and look at my earliest memories, I, I think maybe other people have this experience too. I can't really tell looking at it from now, you know, what actually happened what was maybe a dream that I dreamed and then decided that that actually happened or what actually happened and was really a dream uh, where, where my story starts uh, and ends and where other people's stories start and end. It all gets a little bit confusing when I look really far back. Um, you know, there's a, there's a convention in sort of mainstream Western culture you talk about, you get a certain package of biological proclivities and then things happen to you in early childhood that are important and determine which way you go. And that's my story. You know, that's what we say. But I, you know, the traditional Buddhist view of course, is that, that this life is just one life and that there are other lives that preceded that. Um, and you know this this we don't really this isn't really front and center so much in the Zen tradition, but but especially in the, the Indian or, or Tibetan traditions, it's much more present. But it is there. You know the, the whole thing of the the previous lives. It, it used to actually kind of piss me off when people would talk about it because I, I thought it was just you know sort of preposterous, sort of mumbo jumbo. You know, and I, I have a scientific background as well, uh, but. Over the years, as I study the nature of mind, uh, through Zazen in particular, I, I find I'm much more open to that. Uh, you know, not, nothing really literal, uh, you know, that I have to say on that topic, but it's just, I think it's just another way of saying, um, you know, that we're interdependent. Uh, so it's really, in that sense, it's nothing really exotic or fancy. <laughs> But anyway, so I was thinking of, of early memories, and, and one of the earliest memories I have is of being at a, a sliding glass door, and I was maybe two or three still in diapers and sitting there, and all of a sudden there was this big wolf in front of the door with these big red bloodshot eyes, and it was it had a very predatory look, and I was terrified. I, I knew that it wanted to eat me, to hunt me, that I was being hunted. And I, I afterwards, I remember telling my parents, and they're like, what are you talking about? There's no wolf there. And afterwards, I, I, I brought up not too long ago, and my parents, are, they had no memory of it. So I don't, maybe that was a dream. <laughs> but 
but it, I, for years I was convinced it was real. Another one that I thought was a dream, I seem to remember being in a spaceport with my parents and with the cigar-shaped rocket ships, you know, and steam coming out of the vents every now and then. And I was, I was telling my wife, uh, Sokyo, that I had this dream, and she said, oh, uh, that's not a dream. That's a buried memory. It's because you're an extraterrestrial changeling. That's from when you're, you were delivered to your Earth parents. So she said, no, that actually happened. <laughs> so anyway, um, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and I grew up there until I was five. Uh, both my parents grew up in the South. My father was from Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, which is down south, south Mississippi, not too far from New Orleans. Uh, and I, a few years ago, I met with his older brother, who's around 90 now. For the first time, I had no contact with that side of the family until about 10 years ago. But he was telling stories of what it was like. So this would have been the 30s and 40s, you know, Mississippi at the time. And I... You know, I mean, the stuff was like right out of uh, Faulkner. He was telling me about stuff like, uh, um, you know, neighbor's uh, wife uh, smothered the husband in his sleep with a pillow and then turned on the gas tap, went downstairs and lit a match and blew up the whole house. Or cousins getting committed to the state asylum in Jackson. Uh, mother sort of scheming to get for her son to get the neighbor's girl pregnant so that they would have to get married and you know crazy stuff and i i was thinking about you know mississippi at the time is very highly segregated sort of you know racist society and i i i guess this is just sort of like the 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 depravity that comes from being a white person in that type of milieu that's how i understand it um but I went there about 10 years ago with my dad. And the other thing was uh, he had a sister that that um, died years before he was born. My grandmother was driving a car and ran a stop sign. And her daughter, my aunt, I guess it was, was in the car. And she was thrown from the car and killed. I think she was five years old. And I've... I never really found out about this till later, but I've always felt her and I wanted to, I wanted to go see her grave. So I, um, I, I asked him and then we, we had to look and we found it eventually. It was this really overgrown untended part of the, the Hattiesburg cemetery. And I remember there was a little very crudely carved lamb on the top of the headstone. And it said something like, um, uh, we love you so much, sweet lamb, or something. And it it really got me. Um, you know, and the, the other thing that really got me was it was it was supposed to be a family plot, but my grandparents moved away uh, somewhat later, and they they moved to Florida, and they they were buried there. So this grave it's just completely uh, alone, untended there. Uh, so I felt that very strongly. Um, my mom grew up in uh, in Alabama, although her family is from Ohio. Um, and my mom, uh, we 
they met in Atlanta, my parents, where I lived, and we moved to, to the D.C. area when I was five. Uh, my father worked for the, uh, for the Justice Department under in the Carter administration, and my, my mom was a flight attendant. Um, but she had to, uh, when she got married, she had to quit her job. There was a rule that, that, um, that women could not be married and be flight attendants, um, so she had to quit. Um, there was a, a, she got her job back later. There was a class action suit because men weren't required to, to stop. And so she eventually went back to work when I was nine or 10. The other strong memory I have from my mother's family is of her, her sister, my aunt on the other side, who was, who had Down syndrome. She was her younger sister. And I used to play with her all the time. I, I, when I was a kid, I really loved, you know, I, I had the experience afterwards of of meeting a few people with Down syndrome, and I found that, um, you know, obviously they can't do the complex linear stuff as well as the rest of us. But you know, I, I found they have a, a very pure heart often. Um, so I really uh, I got that from her. Um, I didn't really have much religious upbringing. Uh, I. I you know, I, I remember my parents brought me to, to church a handful of times, but I think it was more like something that you feel that you're supposed to do with your kids, like taking them to get their shots or something. Uh, they weren't, I never got the sense that they were really interested in it. I, I can't even remember what it was, some sort of mainline Protestant denomination. I just remember that I was um, bored out of my mind <laughs> the one or two times that I was there. I hated it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the only memory I have of it is, is afterwards you go and get to drink uh, tea, black tea, which is I, the only chance I would get to have black tea with milk and sugar in some garden with uh, very foul-smelling trees. <laughs> so I moved to Salt Lake City when I was around 10, um, and I... I don't know why, uh, you know, my, 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 my dad didn't want to work for the Reagan administration. I know that was part of it, but why Salt Lake city? I have no idea. It was kind of random. Um, but, uh, you know, I fell in love. I remember I, I fell in love with, with the high desert there. Uh, just the, uh, Salt Lake city is right on the edge of the great basin where the great basin meets the Rocky mountains. And, uh, you know, sort of the vast, wide, bright, spacious, open mountains and valleys out there. It's sort of like, I experience it now, it's, it's sort of like the mind of uh, Shikantaza for me. Um, I love that part of the world. I, I, I don't plan to ever live, leave the New York area just because I feel committed to the Sangha here. But, but if, I, if there's anything that could tempt me, it would be the chance to live in the desert again. Um, but in any case, I was—I remember I was—I was totally miserable in Salt Lake City, and I—I I, I can't remember, you know, as a as a young teen or, or, or so. And I—I I don't know. I remember I was in tremendous pain, and I, looking back, I'm not really sure what the cause of that was. It, it almost feels like it was a different life or something. I have trouble remembering who that person was, but I, I know that I was in a lot of pain. I was thinking back. The only memory that I have—the the only I was looking at photos. The only photo I have of myself at that time when I actually looked happy is me with a stick 
and a pair of uh, tidy whities in flames in the end of the stick, and I was just like beaming. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, uh, but so I, you know, around this age, I, I started, uh, I, I, started, I got really into like doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. Um, around 14, I started, you know, taking like LSD and other hallucinogens. And I, I, I don't really know. I never thought of it as like any sort of spiritual activity and I don't now either. And I, I don't really recommend it. Uh, I, I no longer have any interest to do it. It was more just sort of like, there was nothing else. I didn't know what to do with myself. So that's what I did with myself. That was around. Um, uh, and I, over a couple of years, I was getting worse and worse. I would, I would spend, um, you know, days at school. I wouldn't talk to anyone. I would just sort of collapse in the corner and just, withdraw into myself and I, I would have very little contact with anyone and this would get this was getting worse and worse and at one point I, I remember I was I was really high on I don't even know what oh, there was a shack that we used to um, go to to smoke and I was throwing matches onto a straw mattress and stomping them out and the whole thing got out of control and it, it this huge fire and it burned the shack down and it burned the electric wires overhead they snapped and they were you know shooting all over the place and jumping around and shooting out sparks and all the fire engines came and you know I got in a lot of trouble um I almost got they you know the 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 they wanted to send me to the um some sort of school for young arsonists or something some sort of you know something in the criminal justice system and I just barely got out of that you know and again you know uh you know, I have to say, if I if I hadn't been white, I think it things would have perhaps gone a different way, but but fortunately for me, they they didn't. I, I ended up getting sent away to another school in Arizona, uh, and you know, again, there was there was lots of drugs. It was like this island that the 1960s never ended. Um, but I got sent to a counselor there who really had a um, impact on me. He was. Uh, I realized in retrospect that he had some sort of meditation practice, although he didn't really talk about it too much. Although I, I remember once we were talking and he just remarked to me, he said, you know, you can get, there is a point where you can just be with other people and in silence and just sit with other people and not say anything. And I was like, that totally blew my mind. I was like, whoa, you know, what are you talking about? And I, I also remember at some point he gave me a copy of an old, really bad translation of the, the Mumon Khan on one of the Koan collections. And I was like, I, I didn't know what, I was like, what the hell is this? It didn't make, I didn't know what to make of it, but I was fascinated by it. And then around that time also, I, I found the, uh, the Tao Te Ching and the, uh, the, uh, the Upanishads and the, the Dhammapada, some of these other books. Um, and I, uh, I remember I used to go into the desert by myself and put a uh, put a candle out there, and I would try and focus on the flame. It was my way of of trying to meditate. I had no idea what I was doing, but um, it felt important to me. When I when I went to school uh, to college, I went away, um, and uh, we had there was a, a group there uh, uh, devoted to. Um, introduction to Zen philosophy and meditation. And so I started sitting with these guys and I, um, 
I remember uh, during the winter breaks, two of the people who were in the group uh, went to this, uh, I heard that they went to this uh, monastery in the Catskill Mountains in New York. And I was like, whoa, you know, that's really interesting. And they said, oh, yeah, and uh, the last week of this, we spent uh, a whole week in silent retreat. And so I was really fascinated by by this, but I, I was not ready to do it myself. Um, so I dropped out of school. You know, I was still in, in a lot of pain at this point, and I, I, I you know, I had, I, I just couldn't continue. I, I, I dropped out of school when I was just living in Berkeley, uh, delivering pizza, and uh, I got in a really nihilistic dark place and then but it, at some point it, it, perhaps it was due to more lsd or not i don't know but i had this realization that if it was very cerebral but also there was something else to it i, I realized that if i was going to take the path of negation i would have to negate negation itself and sort of affirm it's like a double negative right so i, I realized that i would if I was to be consistent and not have asked about it, I would have to reach some affirmative place through negation. So, and another, you know, around this time, my brother was going to a school on the, it was actually a ranch on the Nevada, California border, very small school. It was a school, but also a ranch. And so they, I used to love to visit him up there and I would go up, in the ancient bristlecone pines, which are these trees, they're the, the oldest living trees in the world. Some of them are six or 7,000 years old. And I would go up there. And I remember once, this was the last time I ever took any, any hallucinogens. And I, I did not mean to talk about this. I, I never, you know, but, 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 it, and I never thought of it as being significant, but, but apparently it's a, it's a theme in my, my early development. So it is what it is. Um, but it wasn't, it's more that I wanted to be up among the trees. I felt the trees, these ancient trees had something to to impart to me, living up in the, just in the rock in the sky for 6,000 years. I felt they had some something. And, and the, the, the mushrooms were just like kind of incidental, like a crutch. But I realized I got way out of my depth. Um, I had a panic attack. I was up there by myself. And when I eventually calmed down, I, I sort of realized that, you know, I was not, I was never going to find what I was looking for through any kind of experience because any sort of experience that I could have would be contingent on conditions being right. And so that wasn't what I was looking for. So I, I, I want to sort of um, head, head towards the end of this, but eventually um I ended up uh, going to Germany, which I, I spoke a lot about that in a, in a recent talk, so I won't, I won't go over that there. But I was living in Germany not too long after this, and, and that's where I really connected with Zen practice. There was a small Zendo run by a guy named uh, Taiko, who was a, a Zen monk. And I don't know much about him, except that he, he reminds me a lot of Dido. He was a former um, pilot of, of the German Air Force One. But then he started having busy spells at some point. And so he had to uh, he had to quit that. He had wanted to be a Catholic priest as a boy. And I remember him also telling me about he he lived through the uh, the bombing of Hamburg when he was a kid. 
remember him talking about he came out of the um his apartment once out of the bombing shelter and the neighbor's house was destroyed and he saw them their corpses in their in the ruins of the house and anyway the first day that i went there he sat down and we were sitting and he gave a you know jodo style talk where we give a talk during zazen and i remember he started reading um this the way is basically perfect and all pervading how could it be contingent upon practice and realization the dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled what need is there for concentrated effort indeed the whole body is far beyond the world's dust who could believe in a means to brush it clean it is never apart from one right where one is what is the use of going off here and there to practice? And yet, if there is the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. So that's the, uh, that's the beginning of Dogen's uh, instructions on Zazen. And I felt like I'd been hit by a lightning bolt. I, I, I realized that I had found something that I was looking for that I had never needed to look for in the first place in some sense. And, since then, I mean, it's it's been a very long journey since then. But I've I've continued to I, I've sat pretty much every day since then. Um, that was back in the early nineties. And you know, I, I I was just thinking, you know, my brother is very similar to me in a lot of ways, but never found a, a practice and has has spent a lot of time living on the streets, you know, addicted to drugs and, and has had a very hard time. I'm surprised he's still alive. But I feel you know, without this practice, I would have been, I'm certain that would have been my path as well. In a sense, I don't even think that, that from an absolute point of view, my path is no better or worse than his. They're, they're not fundamentally different, actually. Um, on the other hand, from... A relative point of view, I feel extremely, extremely grateful to have connected with something. It's, I feel it's a debt that I can't ever repay, but I will keep trying. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.